It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's talk global geopolitics, global energy. There's a lot going on out there in this big world. Ed Price, senior fellow and former British trade official at NYU, joins us. Ed, let's first talk about just the global energy markets. That's kind of been on topic today. Again, Brent crude down about 8% today, below $100. We're just at 130 There's a lot of crosswinds out there. What are you focusing on here? Right. Well, on those crosswinds, honestly, and it's, it's a bit bizarre, um, this war in Europe, I think, is something of a mixed signal. And I think that that's something that everyone's looking at, including the Fed. On the one hand, it's, it's obviously inflationary, right, because it's a supply disruption. And that goes back to what you're saying about oil prices. They spiked. Everyone freaked out at the pumps over here in the U.S. Um, but on the other hand, it's deflationary in the sense that it could destroy global demand. Look at the IMF. It's downgrading its global growth forecast for 2022. So I, I think it's it's very uh, it's a good phrase that you're using there, crosswinds, and we're just going to have to lick our finger, put it in the air, and see which one is stronger. What do you think, Ed, about the story that um, Saudi Arabia is in talks with China to um, basically accept yuan instead of dollars for oil? I mean, um, this has to be a huge economic issue, right? It centers around the world reserve currency and the power that the U.S. gets from that, but maybe a shift now towards, um, you know, the second biggest economy. Yes, this is, I think everything that's happening now um, at root is a dollar standard story. So you can, you can look at the war in Ukraine, you can look at COVID, you can look at U.S. domestic inflation, and I think with a big piece of paper and a marker pen, you can draw the lines between all of these things and what the world expects uh, of the dollar and how people are looking at the dollar in the future. So if, if the Saudis are indeed doing that, um, that's no bueno for us, for those of us who have a, a very strong stake in the dollar standards. Um, and I think it's something that in, in this period of disruption, we should definitely watch, definitely look at, not get too distracted. Um, everything we're looking at is a dollar standard story. Ed, what's kind of astounded me as, as I think about this Russia-Ukraine situation is how it, it seems like it's so well-coordinated, some of the economic sanctions we're seeing from not just the U.S., but from other countries as well. From your perspective, how effective do you think they can be, will be on Russia? Because just on the surface to this layperson, they seem pretty significant. 
Right. I think very significant. Um, I've, I've seen a few commentators saying, you know, don't count the Russians out. Um, these, these sanctions will, will not have the sort of effect that you want. But honestly, I would not be surprised by a complete and total collapse in Russia in the social fabric. Um, I think part of this is, is the whole information uh, scenery. It, it seems, if you look at reports in New York Times and so on, it seems that the Russians still don't know that they're at war, most of them, which is bizarre. Um, but when they do find out, um, which, you know, one has to think will happen as, as the, uh, the body count comes up, right, um, I think that, that in combination with what's going on in the financial system could really, really put Russia into a serious problem. So I think one point to make, though, just conceptually, is that a lot of people are talking about the second Cold War. I think the difference here is that we're not trying to contain Russia and the Russian economy. We're actually trying to export recession and even a financial crisis into Russia. So I think that can be very effective. Um, one of the interesting moves I've seen as someone who you know lived in Germany, but I know you studied also German history, is yeah. the shift towards you know finally spending money on military equipment. They had been so not only understaffed, but also um, didn't have enough stuff uh, previously, and weren't spending enough of their um, weren't spending enough of their uh, GDP on, you know, they had the 2% promise on, uh, mm -hmm. military gear. Now they're going to buy 35 F 35s and uh, 15 new Euro fighters. And this seems to be, you know, one of the, um, unintended consequences of Vladimir Putin's move into Ukraine is that he's united Europe and, you know, rearmed Germany. Well, Matt, I mean, absolutely, rearmament um, is the right phrase to use again. I mean, the, the fact that the Germans are now comfortable uh, with weaponry, with rearming, with a strong uh, military force is incredible. And for anyone with an interest in European and German history, this shift is is profound. Uh, it's also something that I think is going to be thought about in London, right? Because, of course, the UK has just left the European Union. Uh, I don't think we foresaw a German standing army when we did that. Um, but you're right. The real impact here is on Putin. He's made such a massive, massive error going into the Ukraine. Uh, and I think that the obvious bravery of the Ukraine, Ukrainian forces, Ukrainian civilians taking up arms, the longer that lasts, the longer Europe has time to rearm, the longer a standing German army is going to be more of a prospect. I'd put one caveat in there. There are long-standing historical ties between Germany and Russia. And I think if you look back to the First and Second World War, you could argue that the United States intervened in both of those wars to prevent a continental economy in which Russian and German uh, economics were combined under the leadership of either Moscow or Berlin. So in the future, after this war in Ukraine, I wouldn't rule out uh, one scenario, which is an armed Berlin and an armed Moscow shaking hands. All right, Ed, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective here. A lot of, again, crosswinds here on the global geopolitical space impacting markets. Ed Price, he's a senior fellow and former trade official at New York University, giving us some thoughts here. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I pulled up my GLs. Uh, 
uh, GLCO screen on the Bloomberg terminal, global commodities prices. And on a year-to-date basis, everything is pretty much everything is up double digits, whether it's energy, metals, ags. And I guess that's uh, what you call inflation. Um, the question is, when does it peak? How quickly does it come down? How do I play it? Will Rind, Chief Executive Officer for Granite Shares Advisors, joins us. Will, again, I'm looking at my commodities. Pretty much everything is up big time. When does this peak, do you think, this inflation in this U.S. economy? Well, it's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, unfortunately, for as far as inflation goes, uh, these things tend to take a number of years. You know, cycles, uh, particularly on the commodity side, um, tend to last in years, not days or months. Um, I think at this stage, you're really talking about two possible scenarios. Really, if you're talking about inflation easing, that's going to come from an increase in supply. And an increase in supply you know, will happen um, as long as high prices stay or prices stay elevated. But it takes time. Um, the other thing, probably the most likely thing that will happen if prices keep uh, continuing to rise is demand destruction. In other words, the consumer just gives up at some point and says, you know what, I can't pay $5 uh, per gas or 6 or 7 or 8 or whatever it may be at that time. And once that happens, then you start to see easing because the demand for that commodity falls. How much is – how elastic – is the oil patch. Uh, I was talking to a gold miner yesterday who said it's very, that commodity right now is very inelastic. They're taking as much out of the ground as they can. And the, and the ramp up time for new production is, is much longer. Um, what does, what does oil look like in those terms? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, that, you know, again, you know, it depends on what country, you know, you're talking about definitely some more um, production can be bought online. I and mean, clearly the, the, the easiest wins, if you want to look at it that way, um, are going to be from existing uh, producing countries. And that's what the administration is doing, is going to going to producers like Saudi Arabia, going to some of the OPEC countries, uh, even to Venezuela, places like that, um, and trying to get more barrels. Um, so that's certainly possible. Um, but in terms of domestic production, you know, again, those um, fields and sites that are already in operation may be able to, to increase, but really you're looking... Uh, for much more of an increase from likes of shale, et cetera. What, to, what is the problem with getting more out of the shale? Um, I heard somebody this morning say costs to bring oil out of the ground in the U.S. are $33 a barrel. Shouldn't that motivate? Yep. You know, you hear the Biden administration talk all the time as if they've done literally everything they can about these 9,000 leases. Um, if that's really how it is, uh, wouldn't the massive, you know, $66 in profit uh, per barrel of oil drive everybody out to, to bring it to use those leases? Yes and no. Um, so here's what happened last time. Uh, you may remember that there was a huge boom uh, in U.S. shale. And uh, because of that, you know, when prices collapsed and ultimately they did so partly because the U.S. shale industry or U.S. got into a market share war with Saudi Arabia and OPEC uh, in terms of competing for market share. The price well went down. A lot of those a lot of those shale producers went bust. And in that sort of rush to produce more production, you know, banks have lent them a lot of money, a lot of financing there, and a lot of people lost a lot of money um, in that particular collapse. 
So long story short is you know the producers are going to be more disciplined. They're going to be more disciplined because you know the banks and the lenders are making them be more disciplined. But they're also fearful of you know the oil price collapsing again like it did last time. So people are going to be more disciplined and therefore a bit more cautious about bringing that production on um, because of the, 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 the cautionary tale that we had last time. Hey, Will, I'm looking at my metal screen here, and one of the metals that has uh, kind of lagged a little bit is platinum. What's the call on spot platinum here? Well, platinum is an interesting one because palladium went to the moon um, after the war broke out, and that was because simply Russia is the largest producer of palladium in the world. Um, Russia is also the second largest producer of platinum. Number one producer is, is South Africa. But those metals can be interchanged one for one. They're both used for catalytic converters to clean the emissions that come out of uh, an internal combustion engine. And, you know, with the price of palladium almost three times the price of platinum, they can be exchanged or substituted one for one. So uh, people are looking at platinum right now, um, both in terms of, you know, the war situation and a supply disruption coming from Russia, but also because with the price of palladium so high, I think automakers have to come in here and substitute these metals um, in the favor of platinum. Hey, Will, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Next time, we're going to talk a little pork bellies, maybe. I'm looking at the lean hogs up 25% year-to-date. How about that trade? Ripping face. Ripping. I like it. Will Ryan, Chief Executive Officer for Granite Shares Advisors. We always check in with Will whenever there's big moves in the commodities space, as there has been here over the last uh, several Truly weeks. Truly unbelievable, right? I mean, we saw Brent crude um, went up to, what, $139 yep. a barrel, like literally seven days ago. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's trading at 99 Yeah, it's amazing. And, you know, oil traders, I used to know a few oil traders that would trade this stuff in the pits, and they say, you will get crushed in this market if you don't pay attention. And that's certainly the case here. Dave Majors joins us, the CEO of Mecham Collector Car Auctions. Before we get down to the business side of it, um, what is going on with uh, with the prices in terms of these cars? I mean, for regular every day, like an F one fifty, we're paying out the nose. But the prices that I'm seeing for like a goat, as 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 Greg Jarrett just mentioned, are just huge. Yeah, well, yeah, first, good morning from uh, State Farm Stadium in, in Glendale, Arizona. We're getting ready to get started with another uh, big Mecham auction uh, starts tomorrow. And we're expecting to see prices continue to to be in the stratosphere for collector cars. That that phenomenon started for us back in uh, the, the summer of 2020 when we came back to auction coming out of the pandemic and and actually has, has been picking up steam ever since, as evidenced by our... Uh, well, even before that, with the big muscle, I remember 10 years ago looking at uh, uh, Plymouth Cuda, Barracuda um, that you sold for, I think, $3.4 million. Um, why yeah, is this? Are, that's the holy grail of, of it, collector cars. I see. So that's why, because it's the one. Um, it's not like a GT500 or a, a Chevrolet um, uh, SS. No, the, the Plymouth, the, the 1970 Plymouth Heavy Cuda has always been that that car that if you're if you're a serious collector of American muscle cars, you have to have one of those uh, in your collection. And, and as you said, they go for 
multi-millions of dollars, which, you know, it's, it's just incredible. But the whole collector car market, you know, returned something like 30 or 40% a year over the last uh, 10, 15 years. So that's the cream of the crop, but the market's it's better than well. a hedge fund. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Dave, uh, you know, unlike Matt, at. I am not a car geek, although I do own a 2014 BMW 535 with a manual transmission. So if it's you want to make stick. me a bid, uh, feel free. What's driving <laughs> this market? Is this just the people saying, oh, my God, they aren't going to make any more, uh, you know, gasoline driven cars. So I better get one. You know, gasoline cars, uh, manual shift. Uh, it's a lot of uh, you know people my age, uh, coming of age and remembering the cars of their youth from the 60s and 70s in particular. But now we're starting to see cars from the 80s and 90s pick up steam as well. And so, I, you know, I think a lot of things happened during the pandemic uh, that that built the steam for the collector car market, and and we're seeing that continue with a lot of great cars coming to the market. We've got 1,500 cars here in Arizona, the largest number of cars. Uh, ever to come to this auction. Why are we not so doing a remote? It there? doesn't look like it's slowing down anytime yeah, soon. Yeah, we should definitely go there. You you sell, though, the cream of the crop. We're talking about you have a 1967 Ferrari 275 GTB4. So this is a- another level. But on a lower end, have things like bring a trailer or what's Doug DeMiro's thing called? Cars and bids, um, you know, Hemmings. Have they kind of helped push up the top end? Yeah, I think it, it, particularly in the collector car market, that you know, rising tide lifts all boats certainly holds true. There's, you know, there bring a trailer. There's a certain clientele that wants to just transact act, transact business. Uh, when you come to a make an make auction, it's more of an experience. You want to you want to come and look at the cars and touch and feel them and talk to your friends. Uh, will you never do, Dave? Market, will you never do an online uh, auction platform, you know, eBay style like those others? We do, we do online live auctions. So, for instance, our auction here from Glendale, uh, you can bid online right along with those people that are sitting in the seats. And, and if you look on the website on Meekum.com as you're bidding, it looks just like you're sitting in the front row of the auction. So we're, we're a live auction company. We prefer to, you know, to include the excitement of a live auction, whether you're in person on the phone or, or via the Internet. However you want to bid with us, you, you can participate. Dave, did I understand it correctly that you're at the big football stadium in in Glenville? Glendale? That's correct. State Farm is State Farm is our oldest and and largest sponsor, and we're really happy to have this will be the third year, I believe, that we've been at State Farm Stadium where the Arizona many, Cardinals play. I mean, that suggests you're going to have a lot of people, a lot of Matt Miller type people come through. How many people are going to come through this auction? Well, we'll probably have over the four days of the auction. We'll probably have somewhere around twenty to thirty thousand people. Wow! You know, I certainly wish that we could fill the sixty-five thousand seats in the arena every day, but that that doesn't <laughs> quite happen. <laughs> have you seen any effect of? I, I mean, I don't know Russians uh, what their taste is in cars, but have you ever seen? Have you seen any effect on um, the the um, the sanctions? You know, we haven't yet. Uh, we do have a few. Uh, Russian collectors uh, that that work with us. I assume that we're going to see, you know, that fall off. They're typically not at this auction. They're at one of our two biggest auctions, either in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, that we just had in January, or Indianapolis, Indiana, in May. Mm. But I would expect that we're we're probably going to see them absent. Hopefully, uh, this conflict is over uh, by the time we get to May and things get back to normal a little bit. Not just for the sake of our auctions and our collectors, yeah. but for the world in general.
from your mouth to God's ears. Dave, thanks so much for joining us. Dave Majors there, the CEO of Mecham Collector Car Auctions. The auction, I think, kicks off tomorrow in Glendale. I'm definitely going to be uh, sitting home watching it you on can cable follow that, TV. Yeah, yeah yep. for sure. Um, or, or online. Yeah. Or online. Kevin but I'm Tynan probably not going to be bidding. <laughs> okay. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. During this entire pandemic and the resulting economic dislocation, one of the areas of the economy that just always amazed me to the upside was uh, the real estate business, whether it's new home sales, new home construction, um, existing home sales, just really, really strong. And obviously, there's a lot of reasons for that, uh, not the least of which is record low interest rates. But a lot of folks are thinking about ways to play that. And one way might be through the technology side. Uh, Tui Kortemunch, he's the CEO of Procore Technologies. He joins us here. Tui, thanks so much for joining us here. Tell us about Procore Procore, Procore, sorry, and how you guys kind of no kind of fit into uh, the construction business. Yeah, no, uh, Paul. By the way, thank you for having me. Nice to uh, nice to meet you. So, Procore is a construction project management platform, and we have provide we provide solutions to everybody involved in the construction process. So, if you've ever built anything like remodeled a bathroom or built a house you know that you're going to hire a general contractor and a bunch of subcontractors, and these folks are going to come together, uh, probably never worked together as a team before, uh, and try to solve the complexities of your project, which is a prototype. And it doesn't matter if it's a house, doesn't matter if it's a nuclear power plant or a port or a bridge or a highway. Uh, you know, construction is everywhere, uh, and Procore's platform brings everybody together onto a single source of truth uh, and enables jobs to get done on time and on budget. And it's... Um, you know, we've, we've now been in business for 20 years, and we're a global company, and it, we're having a lot of fun. So how much of your business is retail, residential versus, um, you know, commercial? So it's actually even way broader than that, Paul. It's, it's interesting. People um, tend to think of construction as being residential and commercial. Um, there is industrial. There's warehouses. There is ports and harbors and civil engineering projects and, you know, uh, nuclear power plants. So... Um, we are very diversified across a very broad um, spectrum. There's very little construction on this planet that doesn't uh, benefit from using Procore uh, across all of those sectors. So we're very much not concentrated. All right. So give us a sense of kind of how your business fared during the pandemic and kind of what's the near term outlook? Yeah. So um, we, we, we tend to follow the uh, the macroeconomic environment pretty pretty closely, which was uh, as as the uh, pandemic came on, um, the general sentiment in the building industry was there was some fear about what was coming in the future. Um, so what we what we saw was there were some headwinds in the industry, but then there were some tailwinds. So let me the headwinds that we faced 
when we were going into the pandemic was uh, there's been a, a labor shortage in construction for years. And uh, that only got more challenging during the uh, during the pandemic. And then, you, you, you know, you've probably talked a lot about the supply chain challenges and uh, <laughs> the global economy. And that's been an issue as well as commodity prices and inflation. So those are the headwinds. Um, that we see in the industry, but we are benefiting from some tailwinds. And the tailwinds are this this industry is one of the last to go through the digital transformation uh, phase. So in a still early days in digital transformation. And COVID brought on two um, new kind of uh, opportunities for Procore. One was because of the remote work environment that came out of COVID, a platform like Procore, which brings everyone together virtually, uh, is really, really beneficial to companies. So it enables people to not have to drive into the job site every day that don't aren't required to be there, number one. And number two was some of the, some of the um, folks that had been in the industry for a long time retired during COVID. And then a lot of the younger folks that were coming out of university were coming in uh, to the industry expecting the technology that would be, uh, you know, mobile-centric and more consumer-based. And that's where Procore really shines. So what we like to say is that on net-net basis, the headwinds and the tailwinds kind of um, netted themselves out. Uh, but I will tell you that the headwinds are working themselves out over time. And we are incredibly optimistic about this $14 trillion TAM that we're looking at. All right. So in terms of your company, you mentioned it was 20 years old, uh, came public yep. last year, had some gold-plated underwriters there, $67 a share. The stock's at just under $52 today. The good news, it's up 4% today. The bad news is down about uh, 35% year-to-date. What's the market concern around your stock over the, the last several months? I don't believe that uh, our stock is being singled out. Uh, I believe that the, our sector, the high-growth vertical SaaS market, has been uh, uh, challenged across. So our cohorts, I think, are facing the same challenges. I think we, because we closed out the year so strong and we're so optimistic about the future, that I think all of this will work itself out over time. So... Talk to us about the growth driver. What's the key growth driver that you guys are really, really uh, focusing on right now, aside from just the economic expansion? Yeah, so um, our platform is very much driven around driving growth uh, and, and driving adoption of, of, of new users and new paying customers. Interestingly enough, our platform allows our customers to bring on unlimited uh, collaborators onto the platform. So if you're a general contractor, you can bring all your subs on at no additional cost to the platform. And because of that, we create this flywheel effect of more, the more people on our platform that see the value of it, the more people that want to be our customers. So um, the growth vectors are the, the network effect that we get from, the, right. um, from our platform, our international expansion, 95, uh, 90% of the TAM is outside the U.S. and ah, our international okay. grew 56% last year. We have a lot of new products that our customers can, can right. purchase on our platform. And so there's just a lot of ways that we look at growth at Procore, right. and it's exciting. Some good stuff there, Tui Cordemanche, CEO of Procore Technologies, uh, joining us here. Talking about technology coming to the construction business and where the upside might be. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.